everyone. Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers. Uh, excited to have you all back for another Finding Peaks episode. We got a thriller today, so I hope you got your popcorn, your soda, all the good things next to you. Take some notes because we got some information coming your way that's pretty exciting. Joined today by Chief Clinical Officer Jason Friesma, LPC LAC, all the clinical things. And our special guest today, Dr. Kevin McCauley, is a Meadows Senior Fellow joining the Meadows Behavioral Health Team in 2016. A 1992 graduate of Drexel University School of Medicine, he first became interested in the treatment of substance use disorders while serving as a naval flight surgeon, where he observed the U.S. Navy's policy of treating addiction as a safety, non-moral issue and returning treated pilots to flight status under careful monitoring. Dr. McCauley wrote and directed two films, Memo to Self, about the concepts of recovery and management, and Pleasure Unwoven, for all the viewers out there, you, I know you've seen it, look it up, it's out there, it's great, <laughs> about the neuroscience of addiction, which won the 2010 Michael Q. Ford Award for Journalism from the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers. It's a mouthful there, folks, but we got some special talent here today. Kevin, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Brandon, it's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's just dive right into it. We've had the past two to three hours to practice today for this moment. Uh, always love hanging out with you and enjoying our conversations, waxing philosophical about the industry, the state of addiction, mental health, and so forth. And, uh, you know, one of the first things I think that would be, you know, great for the viewers out there, you have your own personal story around addiction that you, um, at least in the way that I see it out there in the world and the experiences, you've been very vulnerable sharing in those experiences. And I think out of that, you get a why you do the things you do at the end of the day and why you're so passionate about the work and the disease model and all of these things within um, uh, this industry in particular. And so I was just hopeful that, you know, you can bring the viewers a little bit close to that and share that experience with them. Sure. Well, I am uh, can't say that I was really much of a drug user when I was in high school or college. Uh, but uh, when, I was, when I left medical school, I was in the Navy. Mm -hmm. uh, I had trained as a flight surgeon in Pensacola. Uh, this was a very, very happy time of my life. I, I just, I love being around pilots. Pilots are a fascinating group of patients <laughs> mm -hmm. because they hate doctors. <laughs> and so you've already got kind right. of a typical clinical situation. But if you develop a, a relationship, they, they will come to trust you and they will come to you with medical problems. And that's the idea. There's this old saying that a flight surgeon never really knows how good a job he or she is doing because the mishap that would have occurred never did. Mm -hmm. And I liked that. Mm -hmm. uh, the flying was great. I spent a lot of time throwing up. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it was right around that time that I had to have a surgery. I couldn't um, take the medication. Uh, for this condition. I had to have the surgery to get it fixed definitively if I wanted to stay in the Navy, and I did. Uh, and at the end of that surgery, and it was a very interesting moment because uh, I, I remember asking the doctor, um, are you gonna give me something for pain? And uh, he was a urologist, so you can connect the dots about <laughs> you know what kind of pain we're talking about. And I, I can remember I was sitting in the bed, the catheter, he was here, my mother, who's also a physician, was here, and he knew that I didn't really need it, and she knew that I didn't really need it, but I was scared. Yeah. <laughs> and he wrote me for some oxycodone. And that was, it wasn't my first exposure, but I can tell you exactly where I was. I can feel the planet spinning through space mm -hmm. when I took that oxycodone. Mm -hmm. And I, took the medication, it was time to go back to work, that's fine, great, that was a fun weekend, and didn't think more about it, but then I got re-exposed again after a wisdom tooth extraction, and then again after another medical procedure, and 
pretty soon I had myself a pretty severe intravenous Demerol problem. Mm -hmm. Now this was the year 1997. If a pilot had alcoholism, we had an excellent you know, protocol for that. I mean, I had two alcoholic pilots, got them evaluated, got them to treatment, got them right back in the cockpit. But drugs were a different story mm. uh, back then. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you were handled punitively. Mm -hmm. And so I realized, I, I gotta fix this, I gotta stop using. And at the time I thought I could because I was very motivated to not do this anymore. Mm -hmm. That was a terrible year. That was just a very, very uh, frightening, terrifying, the sense of impending doom. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you know, the Navy found out and they court-martialed me and they sent me to what's called the United States Disciplinary Barracks. It doesn't sound all that bad, <laughs> uh, but it's the, the military's maximum security prison at Fort Leavenworth. Wow. And so that, that was, in many ways, that was my first year of recovery. And I, I'd, I hope you never, I hope nobody ever finds themselves in prison. But when you're in prison, you kind of wake up a little bit yeah, yeah. <laughs> now that the drugs are gone. And you sort of say, gee, am I, am I a terrible person? You know, mm. I mean, am I a sociopath? Yeah. It's kind of an interesting existential question because you're like, how do, how do you know if you're not a sociopath? Maybe that's the first thing a sociopath tells himself. Right, you know, right. You're not a sociopath, don't <laughs> worry about it. So it's hard to figure it out. Um, but I, I really just was fascinated, like, like how did this happen? Mm -hmm. And I think everybody with addiction has a quiet moment where they ask themselves, why do I do this? How did this happen? And this is the year 1997. In 1997, Alan Leshner had just written his Addiction is a Brain Disease and It Matters uh, um, article. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, was the head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. That at the time was a very um, you know, radical article. Mm -hmm. It has since come in for a lot of abuse. It's kind of a lightning rod mm -hmm. now. But the neuroscience at that time was just starting to come together. And so that's, if I wasn't doing my job, which was leaf blowing. I was very good at it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it was excellent. You know, I was one of five physicians there, and we were all very good leaf blowers. Apparently, <laughs> this is what we should be doing. Um, it takes a physician to yeah. do this work well. You give a leaf blower to a sex offender, and they don't know what the hell they're doing. They just blow leaves all over the place. But a doctor, we know, yeah. you know exactly how to do this well. And uh, when I wasn't doing that, I was just reading, reading, reading everything I could get my hands on. And the stuff I read just was astonishing. There really were reasons for this. And over the last 25 years since that time, the neuroscience has gotten stronger, the th parts that we didn't understand have kind of filled in. And so that's basically what I do now is to try to really, you know, uh, do an almost exegesis of that question. Can this really be considered a disease? Why, why not? What problems come with that? What problems get solved with that? And there's you know, just so much to learn. I mean, the, the yeah. neuroscience just gets more and more facet. This is a wonderful time, I think, uh, to get sober. Beautiful, I appreciate yeah. it. So, I, I mean, I'm gonna jump in on, yeah. like, the counselor side, and he'll, he'll handle the brain side, probably. Um, I, I kinda wanna know, like, what moment you, you came to grips with, like, both this, the irony, maybe, that you're helping people in the military kind of have, go in a restoration process right. with a similar issue. Yeah. And meanwhile, you are face the worst punishment imaginable for right, right. having an addiction. I, we, we, maybe walk us through yeah. in, in the, the Leavenworth barracks, which sound beautiful, like the cool <laughs> right. food, all that probably was Well, amazing. when I was trying to, you know, stop on yeah. my own, 
that was a gift I think I was given from the first unauthorized Percocet. Hmm. This is not something that I was supposed to be doing. Yeah. I think there are a lot of clinicians who are like, well, we all kind of do it. No, this is, <laughs> I had a secret clearance. I wasn't supposed to be doing this. Yeah. So there was a lot, of, I was really trying to bring the normative values of being a naval officer and a doctor to bear on this problem. And what shocked me is it would work for a little while yeah. and then it would fail. Yeah. And I had had a patient the first time my first night, actually, as an intern at Oak Knoll, uh, Oakland Naval Hospital, a young uh, sailor came in with the shore patrol for a confinement physical. This was a guy who had turned out to be addicted to heroin, mm. and he had tried so hard to stay off, and then finally he just couldn't take it anymore, and he left. And so they tracked him down and found him in a hotel room, and they dragged him into the ER. And my job was to kind of make sure that he was physically okay, that he could be sent to the brig. Yeah. And actually, he was on a ship, so there's a little box that says, is this sailor, is this individual safe to go on a diet of bread and water? <laughs> it's kind of an arcane <laughs> punishment. That, and I just remember this poor guy, and he was so accepting of his fate. Mm. He you know, kind of felt, I failed. I deserve this. And I just found that so tragic, because the real answer was he never should have been put in that position. There was a time that the Navy treated heroin addiction because it had a heroin problem. Yeah. There's a very, very good Hawaii Five-O episode, the old kind, okay. where Dano goes undercover on a Navy ship. The producers worked with a Navy ship to, to help you know, uh, this uh, sailor, or to at least help sailors who had a heroin problem. I, you'll love this scene if you ever watch it. I'll send you a clip of it. Okay. And, and he's going, you know, gosh, you know, I don't know if I should turn myself in. And, and Dano's like, the Navy has a program. You'll go, you'll get an honorable discharge and everything. I'm like, what a great Navy. Yeah. <laughs> How do you get into that Navy? Because <laughs> that's the Navy I want to be in. That was not the Navy I was in. Yeah. And that was a policy decision that was made shortly after there was a flight deck mishap on the USS Nimitz and people who died were found to have cannabis in their system. And that's where the words, you know, zero tolerance came from. They came from that particular incident and the Navy was zero tolerance on drugs, but there were great policies for other things like, you know, obesity or cigarette smoking or yeah. gambling or, or alcoholism, alcohol. which yeah. is what okay. Betty Ford eventually, that's yeah. the treatment that she got. So it was a very, very isolating, very lonely feeling, yeah. um, which took care of itself. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and now the Navy feels differently. They're not sending people to Leavenworth anymore. We have patients at, at the Meadows who are active duty who developed addictions uh, and are now getting treated. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm kind of a special case. I went to Leavenworth. I like to think that I went to the Harvard of prisons. I, uh, <laughs> I don't know where you went to prison, but I uh, <laughs> went to Leavenworth. So I didn't just go somewhere. I went to this, you know, it was, it was incredible. It was a big brick building that looked like it had, should have bats flying around it. There was a, there was a lot of history behind it. Um, but uh, I think that that's kind of, one of the poignant things about addiction, and I'm sure you see it, is that people with addiction, they almost are accepting of this fate, yeah. be it punishment, rejection, death. There's a Thanatos instinct, mm -hmm. I think, that takes over a death instinct. Mm. And that, I think, is, is part of addiction and part of you know, trying to show people that it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are ways out of this. There's a good life ahead of you in, in recovery. For me, that wasn't uh, even a possibility at that time. Yeah. I mean, what, I appreciate your, your candor, actually, and yeah. how you uh, talk through your story. I think it's so, 
it's just powerful to hear people kind of free from their shame, I guess, of what they've walked through and I should have known better. And well, I can't say I'm entirely okay. free of it. It's, a, it's ongoing, <laughs> free. ongoing yeah. process. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Sure. And it, and it sounds like, you know, uh, and I appreciate the question there, yeah. Jay. And then, uh, you know, going back to this mo model, right. You know, that, that silent question that people have faced with addiction or, uh, are steeped in that are asking themselves quietly, why did I do this? How have I arrived here in that sort of moment? And it sounds like when you arrive, you know, in that, you know, the, the Harvard of prisons there, uh, at the end of the day, you're asking yourselves, like, how the heck did I get here at the end of the day? And, um, and it seems like, right, that there's this apex moment, if I'm reading the history of our, of our industry correctly, where you're asking yourself a question that's being, that's coming from the choice model that existed. And it's this sort of beautiful apex moment. Unfortunately, you're sitting in this cell in this apex moment, reading right. that book. But the choice model is about to collide with the disease model. Right. And uh, I'm just curious how that resonates with you and if that's accurate as like an experience because you, you shoot out of the gates on the other side with all of these positive things that you've done on behalf of the industry and your expertise and professionalism. And so what was it like just to be a part of that, that moment and not only experiencing it on the societal level but at that patient level as well too? Right. Well, I, I mean, this is... This is the question that's fascinated me. I mean, where does responsibility come into it? Where does blame come mm -hmm. into it? Um, the way I envision addiction is that it's a disease of volition. And I use volition as kind of a catch-all term. It's not just the doing of something. It's the why, what drove me? Why did this option pop into my head? What is, what is the menu of options that I've got to deal with this? What are the affordances that my environment provides me to be able to meet this challenge. And then once I do it, did I do it well? Was it effective? And importantly, what's the effect of my social environment having done that? All of these things together, I consider the Rube Goldberg machine of volition. Mm -hmm. And probably at the core of this is the problem in addiction, which is my value calculator is broken. Mm -hmm. And so the whole driver of why I should choose this versus that is off. And, and I think this, this idea of the Bayesian brain, I'm only just starting to grasp it, but every value calculation that the brain makes contains a probability calculation. And so what I have a tendency to do is not only overvalue drugs, but overestimate the probability that they'll work out as I have imagined. Mm -hmm. And I undervalue the consequences that result and I underestimate the probability that those consequences mm -hmm. will in fact come true. I get the math wrong. So there's a certain part of my recovery that I just have to let go of. I, I'm not gonna have control over the thunderclap craving or the, the twists and turns. I can't seem to make that big decision. I'm not gonna use drugs anymore. If I could, I would have done it. Right. And most people do do that. And I should say that, that most people who have addiction, they kind of mature out of it over time. They make some changes and they just don't do it anymore. But for the person with active addiction who can't make that, the only choices that I can make are sort of peripheral choices that change the probability field. Mm -hmm. And that is, where do I live? Who are my peers? What is my job? You know, these are things that I do have control over. And so it became clear to me that I can't make the big decision, but I can break that big decision down into a thousand little decisions. Mm -hmm. And each of those are easier to make. Mm -hmm. And if I make enough of them, they will add up mm 
mm -hmm. to the big decision. And that's where I think responsibility enters into it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, once my addiction is moving and I'm craving and I'm using, you know, I really, uh, it, it's not that I won't be held responsible for the consequences, right. but I don't think that, that I have the same degree of choice, mens rea, mm -hmm. if you like, yeah. uh, the intent, yeah. uh, which is what the prosecutor will look for, right? Not just that bad things happen, but that I intended for that to happen. I don't think that's present right. in the craving person with addiction who's craving. But if I had failed to keep that community of recovering people in my life, if I had failed to meet the, the normative standards that are expected of a physician in recovery, those little decisions are where I'm culpable mm -hmm. and, and could be you know, held culpable if, I, if I'm not careful. Absolutely. As you know, I, I got sober in a very, very strict abstinence-based 12-step tradition. I appreciate the fact that that is not the only tradition. Um, and, but, I, but I tried to do what the doctors around me did. Mm -hmm. and, and by using that, that culture of recovery mm -hmm. and those expectations of recovery, I think that that's, you know, that was the one decision that I made that helped me get out of this. Mm -hmm. But I can't say, well, I chose to get sober. I, just, I don't believe that it was that simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Beautifully stated, and for the viewers out there in the legal system, it's mens rea and mens uh, uh, actus reus. Actus reus, right? You you have an intent to do something, and you actually act on that intentionality. Uh, addiction, the action clearly takes place. It's do they have the volitional intention? Did they mean to cause the harm that you know as a consequence of the behaviors at the end of the day? And that's the insertion there into the disease model that something is disrupting that component. Right or the, the multiple processes that lead to that component within yeah. the brain system. Right? In the American legal tradition, we've always been very, very skeptical of diminished capacity. In the British legal tradition, it's a much more established uh, doctrine, uh, the McNaughton rule. Um, but ever since John Hinckley took a shot at Ronald Reagan, we just you know, hate that whole idea. Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that the law will have to eventually come to accept that the, the pop psychology beliefs that we have about choice and free will and personal responsibility, it's not that they're eliminated by the neuroscience of addiction, they're deepened mm -hmm. uh, and they're more complex than we were giving them credit for. So how do you, you know, in, in all of your conversations and talks, I'm sure you have, you know, Jason's had it in a, in a talk I was at with a gentleman in the back of the room stands up and says, you. How dare you say something like that? You know, and it's not true. And I imagine at times there's like, you know, somebody standing up in the back of the room, you know, challenging that. Like, how do, yes. what do you mean the person didn't have intention to yeah. do this, right? And so, what, you know, for the viewers out there, maybe who are just being introduced to you and those who've certainly seen you talk in the background, you know, what is your, you know, common response that you're bringing forward from that physician lens to help support that individual walk through that narrative? Right, well, I mean, there were, in the early days, there were moments of sheer terror. So, I mean, I've given thousands of lectures now and I love to sit with a group of 15 people and you know, hash this out. But uh, one of the first lectures I did publicly was for the Orange County Bar Association. Probably not the best thing to do while I was on probation in Orange County. <laughs> right. But the judge asked me to give a lecture, so I gave a lecture. And about 15 minutes into it, this young assistant district attorney stood up and said, stop saying you have a disease. You don't have a disease. You didn't shoot gasoline into your veins. You shot drugs into your veins. And you did it because you liked it. You don't have a disease. You use drugs because you like it. 
and that lecture went badly. <laughs> and uh, I did not, I was not able to pull that one out of the fire. But I, you know, I mean, this is the kind of thing that we've been, like, I, I was trying to think, why is what she's saying both right and wrong? And I was actually reading the doctor's opinion in the, in the big book, and it says that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And I, it hit me. I have a problem in the like system in my brain. That, that value probability calculator is in error. And I have to take steps to compensate for that. Uh, and so um, the, the few things, the, the, the explanation of craving, the, this little business about something going wrong in the like calculator, these things serve as uh, very powerful sound bites or at least ideas, memes, uh, for people who are searching for something like that when they are in early recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think um, there's tons that you'll find in, in every form of recovery, certainly lots in, in AA. Um, but, but that's, I think, what I do at the treatment center that I work at is, is we, I try to, to, to show people um, that, um, that these explanations exist. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful argument. You did this because you liked it. But to understand what a like experience is, we have to know a lot more. It's a lot more complex right. than we're giving it credit for. Yeah, I think, you know, we, well, I was going to, I was going <laughs> to, yeah, you saw me. <clears throat> so, uh, Kevin, what do you, what do you see kind of dry, like what breaks the like switch in somebody? So I tend to take a, a sort of environmental approach. Um, this is something you'll be interested. In. I mean, all of my studying in the early days was about the brain. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at cognitive science today, it has sort of realized that that's not good enough. Yeah. That, that, that we really need more understanding of, of how the brain is moving through the world. And so this is the idea of embodied cognition, that I can't understand cognition just by looking at the brain. I have to understand that I've got a body. Mm. And the fact that I've got four limbs, that changes my cognition. This is the whole idea that trauma is kept in the body and that I need to actually look at that. So those are the first two E's of what is called 4E cognition. Uh, or excuse me, the first E is, is embodied. The second is embedded. My choice making, my thinking exists in a world, in a value system, at a moment in history. I have to take that into account too, right? Um, that, uh, that, um, that there are tools that I have, that there's, there's an extended nature to my, um, to my cognition and my choices that I'm making. Drugs work. They are powerful tools that people discover. Very, very, very efficient. But the fourth E, I think, is the one that's so critical, is that cognition and thought are enacted. There is a dynamic coupling between my acts and the environment and what it feeds back to me. So what this tells me is that there needs to be a strategy for each of those four E's. And so if I had to pick one, if I just had to plant my flag somewhere to try to create something that would support a person's healthy decision-making, for me, it's housing. For me, it's the housing component. If I had a dollar to spend <laughs> on my addiction before I'd put it in the basket, uh, before I'd spend it on buprenorphine, I'd spend it on housing. Because once I have safe, stable, secure, sober housing, then everything else works better. And so to really look at the ecology within which my choices take place, I think is, is, is a very fruitful area. And this is what I, what I think people are doing in, in, in peer-based recovery, sober living houses all the time, 
the brain is just the start of the process. I really need to look at the uh, at, at the environment in which those choices are taking place. And that, that does that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm. I mean, because what I hear you saying is like, in order for someone to enter recovery, they do need to be safe. Right. Um, and I think I I look at it as more than just kind of the brick and mortar safety, like that emotional safety that like I. I'm not going to be abused in this location, right. or I'm not. I don't have to worry about my life being in jeopardy, um, and probably a, a lot of my other basic needs are met. That makes a tremendous amount of sense. Yeah, uh, I think what you're saying. Um, I, I mean, it is. It is curious. Are there other diseases that have these four E components to them as well? I think so. I think the in public health, and that's um, kind of my area of study. Um, we call them the social determinants of health. Okay. Uh, and these are all the things that make health possible uh, to be free from structural racism, to be free from violence, to have safe, stable housing, to have access to health care and, and mental health care, to actually have a, an economic future. These are the, really the drivers of, of what make it possible to manage one's chronic disease. And again, I think that that's looking at the, the embodied nature of the way I manage my diabetes, let's say, mm. right? Uh, that's looking at the embedded nature that I live in a world right now where there's a certain technology available to me for managing my diabetes. There are a few interesting medications that are coming down that, that are very, very powerful uh, obesity reversers, right? And so those are, those are things that I need to take into account. There are tools in the world that I can use. There might be support groups. There might be, uh, I, I, had a, uh, I went through this um, experiment where I had a little blood glucose monitor on my, and it was so cool because I could watch how it was fluctuating. That didn't exist in yeah. the past. But it is really how I act in the environment. I've really tried to think, what is the most powerful act of volition that, an, that a single individual can, can, uh, can perform. And, and I've done some exciting things. I've you know, taken off the deck of aircraft carriers, and uh, as in the back seat, of course. <laughs> but there's not really anything that the individual pilot does in that. It's actually a program in the plane, and the pilot just kind of puts his or her hands on the tower racks, and then once the plane is about a quarter mile from the boat, the, plane, the pilot takes over. But it also takes the 3,000 people on the boat to make that happen. So that's a powerful act of volition, but it's not an individual's act. Right. The most powerful, and you tell me if you can think of something better, I'm always asking that question, the most powerful act of volition that an individual can engage in is injection drug use hmm. or, or smoking hmm. drugs. The, the change that occurs so quickly uh, and the degree of change I think that once that person has experienced that, that's the rest of their life is really a workaround, right? Mm -hmm. And so the more we can empower patients, you know, to be able to feel like they're part of the treatment for their diabetes, not just that they're going to the doctor and the doctor is doing something to them and they better follow these rules, that they're a seat at the table of their healthcare. That's more of, a, of an eco ecological approach to treating diseases. And you can put whatever chronic disease you want in there. They're all a little different. Um, but uh, I think that, that that goes beyond just what I can write on a prescription pad or a test that I can get or even a procedure I can do. The patient has to be an active participant uh, in that volitional act of, of treating their chronic disease. Hmm. Love it. Why? You know, we talked about this earlier. It's kind of, you know, we've talked about it on this episode a few times, you know, with Jason present, a few others. 
you know, Gabor Mate's uh, text of it's not why the addiction, it's why the pain. And I think mm -hmm. underneath that as well, too, there are, there's this conflation between, you know, somebody seeking drugs and alcohol for uh, pleasure when really the goal isn't pleasure. It's to arrive at this, I don't feel happy, I don't feel necessary. So right. the goal is, you know, getting to this more state of happiness right. uh, as an experiencer in the world. And drugs are hopeful to be the catalyst, but you know, as Gabor Monte said, it's almost like the drugs almost work. They almost get us to that moment, right? Right in that regard. And I was just hopeful, you know, through your career path and professionalism, that you know, when you hear that language, what is how how do you translate that? Right, right. So I think in the case of a person with trauma or the person who has a diagnosed psychiatric disorder, it's easy to understand the motivation to try to to you know, self-medicate that pain. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also possible to have addiction in the absence of all of that, okay. simply because the intoxicant is so powerful. Mm -hmm. So when we look at a cell phone, checking my email, that's not that powerful an intoxicant. But the variable reinforcement of the, of, of the schedule of reinforcement, all of these things add up. Uh, and I think that, that there are some reinforcers, there are some things that we can do that are intoxicating, that are so powerful that you don't need the initial motivation to seek it. It's just such a, a, a massive change that, that the person you know, becomes locked on that. It's just so efficient. Why would I do any of these other things? Um, I'm trying to remember back uh, what your question was. I, uh, oh, so yeah, just- Oh yeah, the probability thing. Yeah. So, so his statement I think is very, very interesting because what drugs do, at least for me, is they, they open a world of possibility. They open a world of promise that the thing that I've been seeking might be just around the corner. And that's why I think that's a, a good mm -hmm. statement. Mm -hmm. I think cocaine is not satisfying, mm -hmm. but it just sort of holds out the promise that maybe if I do it just a little bit more, if I do it a little stronger, if I have a different situation, that the thing that I'm looking for will be there. And I think that that's, a hard thing to cope with. Um, drugs basically create a Marvel universe mm -hmm. <laughs> for me that is a lot more attractive than this, you know, uh, mortal coil here. Mm -hmm. uh, and they really do change the way I look at what is possible or probable. Mm -hmm. uh, and and now I've got to kind of cope with that mm -hmm. because it, it it turns out to be an illusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you know we're we're disruptors on this episode, right? right? And then yes. and at you know Peaks Recovery Centers, and it's one of the things we're trying to you know drive home uh, at the end of the day. And one of the we talked about like earlier in the day talked about like restrictive access to care. If you just run an abstinence-based model, mm -hmm. and your website says I can treat dual diagnosis, and you bring that in, you're right. actually only creating a a pretty narrow funnel of what you can actually treat and who will receive those services uh, accordingly and ultimately arrive at positive outcomes. And so uh, when, where am I going with this, Brandon? <laughs> when I think about uh, disruption in this sense of things, one of those features of our industry is that there's always like an underlying thing that's causing all of these things. And I think what you really said there is disruptive of that massive narrative we have in our industry. And it's right-sized at times. I don't want to dismount the entire industry, but yeah. uh, you know, in that regard to say that you can have an addiction without all of those things, you know, being in place, I think is, is not something I've heard of like recent, right? There's always something identifiable or we can pull back enough of the, you know, onion layers and, and discover it at the bottom. But um, 
it strikes me as disruptive because of the, the narratives that exist in the industry, but also it seems right-sized as well, too, that we don't always have to have a villain right. as a layer to this that's causing these behaviors. It can just be this experience was more powerful than I ever could have imagined it, and that grip and that around-the-corner experience, even though it's not providing me the relief I think I need, or you know, cocaine's miserable to be on in the first place, but somewhere right around that corner is the driver of it. Um, and I guess I just want to recognize that. I don't even know if there's a question to it. But, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess with something like that as a question, right, do you experience when you say something like that across our industry, people going, no, 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 no. Nobody just picks up a drug and is addicted, right? They have all these other experiences. You know, what would you right. say to maybe that person standing up at a you know, speech or something? I think there is a, a narrative of, well, from the first drink I knew I was an alcoholic. And I certainly, even though it was multiple exposures to opioids, I do seem to go back to that, that one night and, you know, that extra uh, oxycodone tablet. Um, I, I think it's actually a, a much more complex pattern of exposure. What, what I'm interested in is what was going on in that moment? Was what I was experiencing euphoria or was it the lifting of a pre-existing smoldering depression? Mm -hmm. Because opioids are very powerful antidepressants. Mm -hmm. And I think it's hard for a person to parse that out. But what I think a lot of people realize, if not with the first use or the second use, they learn pretty quickly that this intoxication, I can put it to work. Mm -hmm. I, I can apply it to my problem. I can use it to you know, get over my social anxiety. I can use it to work that extra 12 hours, things like that. And so drugs have utility mm -hmm. in that purpose. Mm -hmm. So part of recovery would be letting go of that shortcut. I'm a drug addict, I got a problem with shortcuts, right? And that would be the abstinence model. Mm -hmm. But that's only one mm -hmm. model. When, I, when my mother found out that I was a drug addict, the first thing, and this is why I love my mother, and, and uh, um, we went to the same medical school about six years apart, so uh, I love the way she answered this. She said, we have to get him out of the United States. We have to get him out of the United States where he'll die and get him to Holland or someplace like that where he can use his drugs and not die. Mm -hmm. So let's unpack this because yeah. there's a lot there. Yeah. First of all, the She's idea that there is, <laughs> there is a group of drugs, a, a, a discernible, definable, fungible group of drugs that can be labeled mine. I, I liked that idea very much. That had great <laughs> right. appeal to me. But you see what my mother did. She immediately um, fell back on harm reduction. She immediately fell back on what can we do to make sure that he doesn't die from this. And this is why I love my mother and why I'm, I'm glad to be her son. And so I think that that really has to be the first step. You know, what am I doing today to make sure that this person doesn't die? And if the abstinence model is getting in the way of that, then we may just have to delay the abstinence model. There might be some other tool, and of course there are. There are other tools that we can use. What my mother didn't understand, though, is that there is something called recovery. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm using a definition of recovery that's very strict, that is abstinence-based. It is really the expectation for a physician in recovery if they want to go back to practicing. Uh, and that's my standard. That, that doesn't have to be everybody's standard. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think at, at some point, uh, I have to live a, a period where I'm not actively intoxicated. And it's, it's taken me a lifetime to try to figure out all the little ways, like sugar. I'm still struggling with sugar. Now, is that intoxication like cocaine was intoxication or Demerol? No, but it's part of the problem. It's part of the problem. And so that to me is, is the argument you know, for abstinence. 
is that it's no longer creating that noise that's mm. that's uh, sh um, that's biasing my value probability calculation. Mm -hmm. I got to take the intoxication out. I got to take all that dopamine out of the picture. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, something I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, <clears throat> 90 years ago, or whenever the the big book was written. Um, a part that always stood out to me, even kind of when I was more practicing in an abstinence-based uh, way in this profession, um, was the part where it says that at some point alcohol reached neutrality for some of the people working on the big book. And then, and then fast forward 90 years and all of a sudden we're like, okay, there's a craving state and it seems like it's possible that that craving state can be um, resolved at some point and people can kind of find some more, not just recovery, but kind of freedom from, from uh, maybe the thoughts or the triggers or the cravings. And I, I just, I've always kind of wanted to ask somebody that knows more than, way more than me, like, do you see that? Like, how, how do you see the re resolution of the craving state in this compared to the neutrality? So for a person in recovery, so yeah, a person exactly. who's no yeah. longer drinking, right. does the craving yeah. ever go away? I think craving is a very variable experience, a very hard experience to try to, to frame in words, but I do think there's a phenomenology and experience of what it's like to be a person in craving. I've mm -hmm. tried for the last 20 years to explain craving to people who've never experienced it. I think there are a number of things that will drive my craving if I were to have one right now um, for cocaine or something like that. And that would be, I guess, I hate to be so, uh, um, you know, to use the technique, but the, to use the language, but the daily maintenance of my spiritual condition. And I'm not a very religious person, but I consider that, you know, am I, am I hanging around people who are in recovery? Am I, Am I making choices to separate myself from that old life? Am I, am I exercising? How's my diet? You know, I mean, I'm getting good sleep. All of these things uh, sort of create the foundation of, of, um, of drive or need. And if I've met those, then I'm less likely to crave. Hmm. Um, I think over time, uh, it, it was hard because for the first two years, I just craved every night. And I just figured that this is what my life was going to be. I was going to fi feel fine in the morning. And right around 5 o'clock, I was going to start thinking about cocaine. And, and 8 p.m. would roll around, and I really want to use cocaine. And I didn't think that would ever end. And finally, it was my sponsor who said, stop calling me every night and talking about your damn craving. I've asked you to do steps four and five, and you keep putting me off. Hmm. And so I did two things. I, I went on a drug called bupropion, well, butrin. Mm -hmm which just kind of puts like a little scaffolding underneath the dopamine system. It's stimulant, but not like Vyvanse or Adderall or anything like that. Very, very weak uh, dopamine agonist. And I did that four and five. <laughs> and and I, I hate to say it because I'm a scientist. I want to know these things. Yeah. But the craving was never the same after that. It did seem to shift something. Hmm. And is that possible with something like psilocybin? Does it sort of wipe out those craving connections and at least make things neutral again? Because that seems to be what's happening is if you look at the connectivity in the brain of a person who's in active addiction, they have what's called small-worldedness. There really is just a, a few very, very strong connections. And so whatever you input, you get a, the same output. There, there, there really aren't a lot of options. What these, you know, potential and theogens do is at least for a moment is they make every node equal which is interesting when you see alcohol kind of re, you know reached equality and suddenly there's at least a moment 
where the person can see other possibilities and other connections can be made that aren't consistent with addiction. It's been my experience that this doesn't last long, that you've got kind of an open window there and you've got to start shoving some traditional recovery things through the window. Mm. Um, but that would be interesting. You know, I, 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 I think that it happened in a, a more subtle way for me when I did steps four and five, but I think it can happen in a thunderclap way for people who have a, you know, like Bill Wilson in Towns Hospital. Mm -hmm. What they don't tell you about that is that they were shooting him up with all these anticholinergic drugs, yeah. and it's kind of surprising that he only had one spiritual experience. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it could be that we're doing it in a more elegant way yeah. with these medications, or, or perhaps ketamine, or, you know, I think they're gonna be a wide range mm -hmm. of drugs that we'll be able to use. And at least for that moment, the person can see other possibilities, and the craving backs off. I'm not saying it completely goes away, but it, it no longer becomes the central driver. Hmm. But there was a time when I just thought, eventually this is going to get me. I'm just going to try to stay alive. And so that's the one thing I'm very beholden to 12-step recovery for is that I don't crave cocaine like that hmm. anymore. It just, it just doesn't happen that way. Yeah. So. Yeah, I appreciate, appreciate all of that. Yeah. Um, Wonderfully stated. I also just love listening to you in general. You're, you're so passionate, so professional, so articulated, clearly thought about this. Uh, pleasure unwoven. Right. I see how this kind of forms in my experiences and conversations with you. Uh, and, I, and I know you have other you know, films, books, uh, that sort of thing, but for the sake of the time, if you know the, the kids out there in that dopamine effect, they're only doing three seconds at a time on the Facebook, so we, right. can, only, yeah. we can only give oh, them yeah. so no. much or we'll burn the brains My out. filmmaking is not for, yeah, My filmmaking for it's is terrible <laughs> but, in a TikTok world. <laughs> but for those who are going to get curious, go on YouTube, find your site, you right. know, get the DVD, download it, that sort of thing. Uh, why Pleasure Unwoven? And also for those who are, you know, kind of looking back at a at a thirteen year old film at this point, you know, so let's answer the why, mm -hmm. and then let's also uh, add to it what you would have included it if you were remaking the film today. Um, so when you say why pleasure, are you talking about the title? No, like you probably why, know why, the reference. Why why okay. do this at all? Got it. Well, just as a side, you probably recognize the reference to the title. So it, it refers to Keats' poem. I think it was Keats' poem about Isaac Newton who, oh, wow. damn these scientists, they want to unweave a rainbow. Um, and so uh, that's why I called it, it sounds a little bit like a porn movie. And that's, <laughs> I think it's part of its success, actually. That yeah. it, it does that. But it's this like, yeah. what yeah. I was can, we, can we actually kind of deconstruct what a pleasurable experience is and see if any of this process mm. can go wrong? But at that time, there was no video presentation. There, Hazelden had some great films, but they cost a tremendous amount of money. They were basically meant to be used by, you know, one treatment center. Um, there wasn't a, a film for the people, right. right? And I kept waiting for like Nova, you know, PBS to make a, a, a you know, an hour long presentation of the great scientists interview Nora Volkoff, interview Rita Goldstein and George Kube and all these. The only other thing that was out there was Bill Moyers' special from 19, I think 97. Uh, but that had really become quite long in the tooth. So I, I, I just don't think that people communicate as strongly with prose as they do with visual media. Mm -hmm. I knew that it had to be a visual film. And so I tried to, to at least lay out the basic neuroscience and attempt to make an argument for why it could be considered a disease. But every time I tried to make that film, if it was just like, like this, even a discussion, yeah. it didn't work and it would make people very, very angry. 
I would put little clips on YouTube and I, well, I guess that's just the way social media works, but I was amazed at the violence of yeah. the responses because this is really very basic to human experience, this free will thing. Yeah. So I disguised it <laughs> as basically a National Geographic travelogue <laughs> because you can take pleasure on moving and turn the sound off and it's just the beautiful yeah. landscape of Utah. Yeah. You know, just cars drive, why is that car driving around so much? You know, because it, and so by, and who's that idiot in the cowboy costume? So it comes in as very low energy yeah. and non-threatening because it's just so campy, yeah. right? And I think that in that way, it's sort of subtly kind of, it's a sort of a, um, it's really a challenge in social marketing, right? Mm -hmm. How do you take this healthcare message and deliver it in a way that people can hear without every defense going up? Yep. And so that's, I think it's part of its success, but it's just, you know, even my kids today say, are you gonna make a new film with all those driving scenes? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the family joke. And, and the reason that I put the driving scenes in there was because we would, we would do a segment that talked about, say, George Kube's research, and then we would move on to the next thing, and the test audiences were saying, I, I, it's going, coming too fast. It's coming too fast. I'm thinking about what you just said and I can't hear the next thing that's being said. And so these stretches of boring ass photography are my lame non-filmmaker attempt to try to just you know, slow the whole thing down. The chapter markers too are really there so that therapists can just do a chapter. You know, not the whole damn film, but just a chapter and inspired discussion. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the structure and the strategy of the film. Mm -hmm. What I would change in it, what's, what's wrong in the film, is that it uses the DSM-4 diagnostic dichotomy. It uses basically that line crossed, that there's non-addiction and then there's addiction, or there's substance abuse and then there's substance dependence. And really what the epidemiology showed is that you didn't have a diagnostic dichotomy, you had a range, you had a, a spectrum of severity. And that's why the DSM-5 came out with the substance use disorder spectrum. Mm -hmm. uh, that I wish I could change, but otherwise, the neuroscience is actually holding up pretty well. There's lots more to talk about. It's so much more interesting. If anyone has $250,000 that they would like to give me, I would be glad to remake that thing, but that just doesn't seem to be happening. No one really just comes up to me and gives me that. Um, but I also thought that it was important to do a film about the problem, and that was Pleasure Unwoven, yeah. but really about the solution, and really mm -hmm. talk about all the hopeful things and exciting things in, in recovery management. Like, like programs for professionals or collegiate recovery communities. And so I tried to, to make that second film as, as quickly as I can. Mm -hmm. But that film, Pleasure on Woven cost $60,000 and three people made it. Um, Memo to Self was three times that. Wow. So it was, it's hard <laughs> to yeah. get that kind of money together. <laughs> yeah. But my films make money. Yeah. I mean, we, we made at least a million dollars on Pleasure Unwoven. Wow. So I'll give you your money back. Yeah, just need that, uh, that funding. But I, someone else is going to come along and make an even better film. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what I'm excited about. Mm -hmm. I, I really am interested in the visual media that's being made, that's telling the story of recovery. Because that's what changed everybody's attitude about HIV AIDS. It was the fact that people wrote plays and music and poetry and films and they told the story and expressed the humanity of people who were dying of AIDS and that was what allowed that, uh, that health movement to shift mm 
-hmm. our understanding and our appreciation mm -hmm. and our empathy mm -hmm. for those patients. I think that's what I'm hoping for now, this renaissance of creativity that will tell the story of recovery. And I think that that's our best defense against the encroaching you know, stigma mm -hmm. uh, that will eventually start creeping back in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Perfectly yeah. answered it. That was, that was yeah. awesome. Thank you for that ride. It was also a re-ride on all those cars in Pleasure Unwoven <laughs> yeah. as well, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I was hoping that you called it campy, too. Right. That's like my favorite. <laughs> hey, man, if I could afford a, a cast, <laughs> I wouldn't be in the cowboy uniform. I wouldn't be dressed up like, you know, <laughs> like Marcel Proust, like an idiot, you know, with these little Starbucks Madeline cookies. But what I learned is that filmmaking is like, how are you going to solve a series of problems? Mm -hmm. um, I would have loved to use animation. Animation at that time cost a thousand dollars a second. Now it costs a thousand dollars a tenth of a second. So there's no real way to do the kind of animation that you'll now see on the on the real Nova show that came out about eight years ago. Uh, on the neuroscience of addiction. Mm -hmm. um, so it's funny because filmmaking really, you have to be a complete, well, if you're a good filmmaker, you don't have to do this, but if you're a bad filmmaker, you have to be a complete asshole. Like, and I just had to be just like a complete monster to get what was in here on film. I, I hate to tell you how abusive I was. <laughs> and and uh, you know, it's, it would be hard to go back into that. Because it is an, a massive act of volition mm -hmm. to try to, to get that image, you know, onto uh, media. Um, so I would, I would need a lot of control mm -hmm. uh, if I was ever to try to do it again. It would okay. frighten me. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we just got to find the funny, and I think we have the cameras here. To do sure. <laughs> yeah, you do. This yeah. is a great setup. In fact, the cameras you're using were the very cameras we shot on. So. So, uh, Jay, you got anything? No, I don't. All right, on the kind of the final way out here, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the thing that comes up, we talked about a little earlier, again, it's referencing Gabor Mate. He's a big figure in, um, in the substance use disorder space, mental health primary space, and for a lot of great reasons. He's writing some incredible books. But the, it seems like we're at this new sort of apex moment, right? We did choice into disease, and now we're, you know, and then now we're in this moment of, I wouldn't know what to call it, but under the language, the disease model of pathology versus processes. Right. And Gabor Mate seems to be really pushing that it's processes, not pathology. And through your lens, right. I'm curious, you know, for the viewers out there, what does that mean to you? And um, how, do you, how do you see this positively shifting this? And how much uh, do you see the disease model still resonating even under maybe this new lens, if it is this new apex moment where Sure. Through. It's complex. Um, the trauma narrative is a powerful narrative and it's given voice to many people. And I think it's a, it's a, you know, something certainly that I support. It's having a moment right now. So it doesn't matter what I think. Um, and I definitely appreciate Dr. Matei's humanity and all of his work and the power of his writing. It's important to understand that Dr. Matei is a Canadian and the things that work in Vancouver, do not necessarily work in the United States. If you said harm reduction 15 years ago, your career was over. <laughs> you would never get funding. You would always be on the periphery, the political you know, wasteland, <laughs> um, doing very good work. Mm -hmm. Harm reduction has always been the national policy of Health Canada. And so because Canada has a more public health understanding in general, because people were actually willing to put on masks, <laughs> Canadians are just nicer people. 
than Americans. I think they are a more higher evolved life form, quite frankly, because they can say things like sorry, right? Americans can't do that. So you're never going to get safe injection sites or safe supply into the United States. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to understand the, the possibility landscape okay. that operates in a country like Canada and how it's different from the United States. Um, and that would be that, that sort of embedded nature of, of addiction. I, I certainly do respect the idea of not just reducing addiction to pathology uh, to understand these processes. I would like to know more about that. I'm saying that the processes that are possible in Canada may be very difficult in the United States. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Doesn't right. mean we shouldn't try. When people ask if addiction is a disease, at least 15 years ago, people would say, well, we really have to you know, let the doctors answer that question. Okay, if you get the doctors in the room and you ask them that question, they're gonna turn to the pathologists. Pathology is an amazing field. Five years of training after medical school. That's as much as a general surgeon. And then there are usually um, more specialty training that you can get in addition to that. Mm -hmm. There's an old joke that uh, uh, surgeons know nothing and do everything and internal medicine doctors know everything but do nothing <laughs> and pathologists know everything and do everything one day too late. <laughs> you, you should just understand the, the, the massive fund of knowledge that a pathologist must have. And a pathologist sees disease as injury whether it's a big injury like a broken bone, whether it's a molecular injury, right? I don't think that we should give up on the pathology model just yet. Because if you're really trying to understand how things like structural racism, housing discrimination, uh, not expanding Medicare, actually create inflammatory states that lead to disease, your best way of linking those two worlds is with the disease model, is with that pathophysiology. And that's why I'm kind of interested, and I don't know much about it, this idea of psychoneuroimmunology, mm -hmm. that, that, that really the very same inflammatory state that occurs in the lungs of a person dying of COVID is occurring in the brain of a person who's been traumatized or has addiction or has schizophrenia. It's just happening at a much lower grade over years. Mm -hmm. And so um, we don't want to give up on the pathology model because it's also been the most successful human endeavor ever. Mm -hmm. It has doubled the human lifespan in 100 years. And so I understand that it's, that it's an annoying model, that it's highly reductive, no one likes to be reduced, <laughs> that it's purely materialist, and it doesn't understand so much more, it doesn't understand the ecology of how disease plays out, but there's a lot to be mined there. How? does housing discrimination cause disease? Your best way to understand that is with a pathology model. So I would like to talk about both of those things. I would like to know more about both of those things. Uh, I think that they're actually uh, much less divisible mm -hmm. uh, if you take a public health ecologic approach to disease. Mm -hmm. So we have to change some things in this country if we wanna be healthier. Mm -hmm. I think we learned a lot of horrible things in the pandemic that we weren't even willing mm -hmm. to put on a mask to save the life of our neighbor's kid who's getting better from cancer. That is deeply, deeply pathologic. That was not the problem in Canada, mm -hmm. right? right? Everyone did it. Yeah. That was not the problem in Hawaii, the state that I used to live in. They were 
public health model, no problem. Very, very strict. But we, I think, have some, uh, well, pathological, you know, understandings of personal responsibility and freedom and my rights versus your rights and who should have power and who shouldn't have power. And that is what made us especially vulnerable to the opioid epidemic in ways that other countries weren't quite as. Mm. And so um, don't give up on the disease model just yeah. yet. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot, I think, that, that it can help us understand. But I completely admit that the disease model is just one model uh, to view mm -hmm. addiction and recovery. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Beautifully stated. I also got to get you to use the word psychoneuroimmunology right. without having to bring it up as a question. So right. I feel really good as a host for arriving at yeah. that and getting that language in there um, through that last question. And um, you know, with that, Kevin, I, again, as we've talked about the viewers out there, they're getting tuckered out probably to the bottom of their popcorn bowl bucket now, <laughs> empty on the soda, they gotta go in that regard. And before we take this out, is there anything that you would love to send to the viewers how to find you, your books, your DVDs, any of that information? I, or I'm, leaf blowing service? Leaf blowing yeah, service. Leaf Yes, I, I actually, yeah. you know, you got the blower, I'll do the leaves. Uh, you know, I'm very touched that people have found the film helpful. If you want to email me, and my email is easy, it's kevintmacaulay at me.com. I can send you the links to the streaming versions that I keep on Vimeo because nobody has a DVD player anymore. Right. And if those are helpful to you, at least even a little bit, that, that makes me very happy. Absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, you, you know the DVD still exists because I pulled you into the meeting today at Ark and they held <laughs> up there like, that's yeah. the yeah. guy. It's Makes a great coaster. <laughs> Makes that's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, at least these days. It has some value. Yeah. Well, in that regard, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Dr. Kevin McCauley, thank you so much for being on this episode. Again, a senior fellow of the Meadows. You know, here at Peaks, we are, the Meadows, is a, it's not just a professional relationship, it's personal as well, too. We've sent several staff members out there myself included, president founder Chris Burns, our, our other founder, you know, Robert Patton, our, our therapist. We've all kind of pushed into, especially during the pandemic, uh, into Survivor's Weeks and similar programming out at the Meadows. Uh, there's so much work out there, process addiction, substance use disorders, mental health, uh, adolescent programming, uh, eating disorders. Uh, you're in multiple states. You guys are doing wonderful things. Uh, and the Senior Fellows is just such a special cast in the Meadows program, and I just want to honor that, you know, and having you on here. Fascinating what they're doing out there in Wickenburg, Arizona, and their other locations. So I'll do the real for you in that regard. But uh, for everybody out there, again, this is Brandon Burden, uh, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers. Find us on the TikToks, the Facebooks, the Instagrams, all the things out there. We're out there, YouTube channel and so forth. Uh, for more episodes, again, your vision's important to us. Your questions are important to us. Send us all that stuff. Finding Peaks at PeaksRecovery.com. And until next time, so grateful that you all joined us. And we'll see you again soon with other special guests here in Finding Peaks. Take care.